Story 3 of The Room in the Tower and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dom Ford. The Room in the Tower and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. Garvin's Eve. It is only the largest kind of ordnance map that records the existence of the village of Garvin in the Shire of Sutherland, and it is perhaps surprising that any map on whatever scale should mark so small and huddled a group of huts, set on a bare, bleak headland between moor and sea, and, so one would have thought, of no import at all to any who did not happen to live there. But the river Garvin, on the right bank of which stand this half-dozen of chimneyless and wind-swept habitations, is a geographical fact of far greater interest to outsiders, for the salmon there are heavy fish, the mouth of the river is clear of nets, and all the way up to Garvin Lock, some six miles inland, the coffee-coloured water lies in pool after deep pool, which merge, if the river is in order, and the angler moderately sanguine, on a fishing probability amounting almost to a certainty. In any case, during the first fortnight of September last, I had no blank day on those delectable waters, and up till the 15th of that month there was no day on which someone at the lodge in which I was stopping did not land a fish out of the famous Pict's Pool. But after the 15th, that pool was not fished again. The reason why is here set forward. The river at this point, after some hundred yards of rapid, makes a sudden turn round a rocky angle and plunges madly into the pool itself. Very deep water lies at the head of it, but deeper still further down on the east side, where a portion of the stream flicks back again in a swift, dark backwater towards the top of the pool again. It is fishable only from the western bank, for to the east, above this backwater, a great wall of black and basaltic rock, heaved up, no doubt, by some fault in strata, rises sheer from the river to the height of some sixty feet. It is in fact nearly precipitous on both sides, heavily serrated at the top, and of so curious a thinness that at almost the middle of it, where a fissure breaks its topmost edge, and some twenty feet from the top, there exists a long hole, a sort of lancet window, one would say, right through the rock, so that a slit of daylight can be seen through it. Since, therefore, no one would care to cast his line standing perched on that razor-edged eminence, the pool must needs be fished from the western bank. A decent fly, however, will cover it all. It is on the western bank that there stand the remains of that which gave its title to the pool, namely the ruins of a picked castle, built out of rough and scarcely hewn masonry, unmortared but on a certain large and impressive scale, and in a very well-preserved condition considering its extreme antiquity. It is circular in shape and measures some twenty yards of diameter in its internal span, a staircase of large blocks with a rise of at least a foot leads up to the main gate, and opposite this on the side towards the river is another smaller postern, through which down a rather hazardously steep slope a scrambling path, where progress demands both caution and activity, conducts to the head of the pool, which lies immediately beneath it. A gate chamber, still roofed over, exists in the solid wall, Inside there are foundation indications of three rooms, and in the centre of all a very deep hole, probably a well. Finally, just outside the postern, leading to the river, is a small artificially levelled platform, some twenty feet across, as if made to support some superincumbent edifice. Certain stone slabs and blocks are dispersed over it. Brora, the post-town of Garvan, lies some six miles to the southwest. 
and from it a track over the moor leads to the rapids immediately above the picked pool, across which, by somewhat extravagant striding from boulder to boulder, a man can pass dry foot when the river is low, and make his way up a steep path to the north of the basaltic rock, and so to the village. But this transit demands a steady head, and at the best is a somewhat giddy passage. Otherwise, the road between it and Brora lies in a long detour higher up the moor, passing by the gates of Garvan Lodge, where I was stopping. For some vague and ill-defined reason, the pool itself and the Picts Castle had an uneasy reputation on the countryside, and several times trudging back from a day's fishing I have known my gilly take a longish circuit, though heavy with fish, rather than make this shortcut in the dusk by the castle. On the first occasion when Sandy, a strapping yellow-bearded Viking of twenty-five, did this, he gave as a reason that the ground round about the castle was mossy, though, as a God-fearing man, he must have known he lied. But on another occasion he was more frank, and said that the picked pool was no canny after sunset. I am now inclined to agree with him, though, when he lied about it. I think it was because, as a God-fearing man, he feared the devil also. It was on the evening of September 14 that I was walking back with my host, Hugh Graham, from the forest beyond the lodge. It had been a day unseasonably hot for the time of year, and the hills were blanketed with soft furry clouds. Sandy, the gilly of whom I have spoken, was behind with the ponies, and idly enough I told Hugh about his strange distastes for the pig's pool after sunset. He listened, frowning a little. That's curious, he said. I know there is some dim local superstition about that place, but last year certainly Sandy used to laugh at it. I remember asking him what ailed the place, and he said he thought nothing about the rubbish folk talked. But this year you say he avoids it? On several occasions with me he has done so. Hugh smoked a while in silence, striding noiselessly over the dusky fragrant heather. Poor chap, he said. I don't know what to do about him. He's becoming useless. Drink? I asked. Yes, drink in a secondary manner. But trouble led to drink. And trouble, I'm afraid, is leading him to worse than drink. The only thing worse than drink is the devil, I remarked. Precisely. That's where he is going. He goes there often. What on earth do you mean? I asked. Well, it's rather curious, said Hugh. You know I dabble a bit in folklore and local superstition, and I believe I am on track of something odder than odd. Just wait a moment. We stood there in the gathering dusk till the ponies laboured up the hillside to us, Sandy, with his six feet of lithe strength, strolling easily beside them up the steep brae, as if his long day's trudging had but served to half-awaken his dormant powers of limb. "'Going to see Mistress Macpherson again tonight?' asked Hugh. "'Aye, poor body,' said Sandy. "'She's old and she's lone.' "'Very kind of you, Sandy,' said Hugh, and we walked on. What then? I asked when the ponies had fallen behind again. Why, superstition lingers here, said Hugh. And it's supposed she's a witch. To be quite candid with you, the thing interests me a good deal. Supposing you asked me, on oath, whether I believed in witches, I should say no. But if you asked me again, on oath, whether I suspected I believed in them, I should, I think, say yes. And the 15th of this month, tomorrow, is Garvin's Eve. And what in heaven's name is that? I asked. And who is Garvin, and what's the trouble? Well, Garvin is the person, I suppose, not saint, who is what we should call the eponymous hero of this district. And the trouble is Sandy's trouble. Rather a long story. 
but there's a long mile in front of us yet if you care to be told. During that mile, I heard. Sandy had been engaged a year ago to a girl of Garvin who was in service at Inverness. In March last, he had gone, without giving notice, to see her, and, as he walked up the street in which her mistress's house stood, had met her suddenly face to face, in company with a man whose clipped speech betrayed him English, whose manner a kind of gentleman. He had a flourish of his hat for Sandy, pleasure to see him, and scarcely any need of explanation as to how he came to be walking with Katrine. It was the most natural thing possible, for a city like Inverness boasted its innocent urbanities, and a girl could stroll with a man. And, for the time, since also Katrine was so frankly pleased to see him, Sandy was satisfied. But after his return to Garvin, suspicion, fungus-like, grew rank in his mind with the result that a month ago he had, with infinite pains and blottings, written a letter to Katrine, urging her return and immediate marriage. Thereafter, it was known that she had left Inverness. It was known that she had arrived by train at Brora. From Brora, she had started to walk across the moor by the park leading just above the Picts Castle, crossing the rapids to Garvin, leaving her box to be sent by the carrier. But at Garvin, she had never arrived. Also, it was said that, though it was a hot afternoon, she wore a big cloak. By this time we had come to the lodge, the lights of which showed dim and blurred through the thick hill mists that had streamed sullenly down from the higher ground. And the rest, said Hugh, which is as fantastic as this is sober fact, I will tell you later. Now, a fruit-bearing determination to go to bed is, to my mind, as difficult to ripen as a fruit-bearing determination to get up, and, in spite of our long day, I was glad when Hugh, the rest of the men having yawned themselves out of the smoking-room, came back from the hospitable dispensing of bedroom candlesticks with a briskness that denoted that, as far as he was concerned, the distressing determination was not imminent. As regards Sandy, I suggested. Ah, I also was thinking of that, he said. Well, Katrine Gordon left Brora and never arrived here. That is fact. Now for what remains. Have you any remembrance of a woman always alone walking about the moor by the lock? I think I once called your attention to her. Yes, I remember, I said. Not Katrine, surely. A very old woman, awful to look at. Moustache, whiskers and muttering to herself. Always looking at the ground, too. Yes, that is she, not Katrine. Katrine, my word, a May morning. But the other, it is Mrs. Macpherson, reputed witch. Well, Sandy trudges there, a mile and more away, every night to see her. You know Sandy, Adonis of the North. Now, can you account by any natural explanation for that fact? That he goes off after a long day to see an old hag in the hills? It would seem unlikely, said I. Unlikely? Well, yes, unlikely. Hugh got up from his chair and crossed the room to where a bookcase of rather fusty-looking volumes stood between windows. He took a small Morocco-backed book from a top shelf. Superstitions of Sutherlandshire, he said, as he handed it to me. Turn to page 128 and read. I obeyed and read. September 15 appears to have been the date of what we may call this Devil Festival. On the night of that day, the powers of darkness held preeminent dominion, and overrode for any who were abroad that night, and invoked their aid, the protective providence of Almighty God. Witches, therefore, above all, were peculiarly potent. On this night, any witch could entice to herself the heart and the love of any young man who consulted her on matters of filter or love charm, with the result that on any night in succeeding years of the same date, he, 
though he was lawfully affianced and wedded, would for that night be hers. If, however, he should call on the name of God through any sudden grace of the Spirit, her charm would be of no avail. On this night, too, all witches had the power by certain dreadful incantations and indescribable profanities to raise from the dead those who had committed suicide. Top of the next page, said Hugh. Leave out this next paragraph. It does not bear on this last. Near a small village in this county, I read, called Garvan, the moon at midnight is said to shine through a certain gap or fissure in a wall of rock close beside the river onto the ruins of a picked castle, so that the light of its beams falls onto a large flat stone erected there near the gate, and supposed by some to be an ancient and pagan altar. At that moment, so the superstition still lingers in the countryside, the evil and malignant spirits which hold sway on Garvin's Eve are at the zenith of their powers, and those who invoke their aid at this moment and in this place will, though with infinite peril to their immortal souls, get all that they desire of them. The paragraph on the subject ended here, and I shut the book. Well? I asked. Under favourable circumstances, two and two make four, said Hugh. And four means this. Sandy is certainly in consultation with a woman who is supposed to be a witch, whose path no crofter will cross after nightfall. He wants to learn, at whatever cost, poor devil, what happened to Katrine. Thus, I think it more than possible that tomorrow, at midnight, there will be folk by the Pict's pool. There is another curious thing. I was fishing there yesterday, and just opposite the river gate of the castle, someone has set up a great flat stone, which has been dragged, for I noticed the crushed grass, from the debris at the bottom of the slope. You mean that the old hag is going to try to raise the body of Katrine, if she's dead? Yes, and I mean to see myself what happens. Come to. The next day, Hugh and I fished down the river from the lodge, taking with us not Sandy, but another gilly, and ate our lunch on the slope of the Pict's castle after landing a couple of fish there. Even as Hugh had said, a great flat slab of stone had been dragged onto the platform outside the river gate of the castle, where it rested on certain rude supports which, now that it was in place, seemed certainly designed to receive it. It was also exactly opposite that lancet window in the basaltic rock across the pool, so that if the moon at midnight did shine through it, the light would fall on the stone. This, then, was the almost certain scene of the incantations. Below the platform, as I have said, the ground fell rapidly away to the level of the pool, which, owing to rain on the hills, was running very high, and, streaked with lines of greyish bubbles, poured down an amazing and ear-filling volume. But directly underneath the steep escarpment of rock on the far side of the pool, it lay foamless and black, a still backwater of great depth. Above the altar-like erection against the ground rose up seven rough-hewn steps to the gate itself, on each side of which, to the height of about four feet, ran the circular wall of the castle. Inside again were the remains of partition walls between the three chambers, and it was in one of the nearest to the river gate that we determined to conceal ourselves that night. From there, should the witch and Sandy keep tryst at the altar, any sound of movement would reach us, and through the aperture of the gate itself we could see, concealed in the shadow of the wall, whatever took place at the altar or down below at the pool. The lodge, finally, was but a short ten minutes away, if one went in the direct line, so that by starting at a quarter to twelve that night, we could enter the Pict's castle by the gate away from the river, thus not betraying our presence to those who might be waiting for the moment when the moon would shine through the lancet window in the wall of rock on to the altar in front of the river gate. Night fell very still and windless, 
and when not long before midnight we let ourselves silently out of the lodge, though to the east the sky was clear, a black continent of cloud was creeping up from the west, and had now nearly reached the zenith. Out of the remote fringes of it, occasional lightning winked, and the growl of very distant thunder sounded drowsily at long intervals after. But it seemed to me as if another storm hung over our heads, ready every moment to burst for the oppression in the air was of a far heavier quality than so distant a disturbance could have accounted for. To the east, however, the sky was still luminously clear. The curiously hard edges of the western cloud were star-embroidered, and by the dove-coloured light in the east it was evident that the moonrise over the moor was imminent. And though I did not in my heart believe that our expedition would end in anything but yawns, I was conscious of an extreme tension and rawness of nerves which I set down to the thunder-charged air. For noiselessness of footstep, we had both put on India-rubber-soled shoes, and all the way down to the pool we heard nothing but the very distant thunder and our own padded tread. Very silently and cautiously we ascended the steps of the gate away from the river, and, keeping close to the wall inside, sidled round to the river gate and peered out. For the first moment I could see nothing. So black lay the shadow of the rock wall opposite across the pool, but, by degrees, I made out the lumps and line of the glimmering foam which streaked the water. High as the river was running this morning, it was infinitely more voluminous and turbulent now, and the sound of it filled and bewildered the ear with its sonorous roaring. Only, under the very base of the rock opposite, it ran quite black and unfeckled by foam. There lay the deep, still surface of the backwater. Then, suddenly, I saw something black move in the dimness in front of me, and against the grey foam rose up first the head, then the shoulders, and finally the whole figure of a woman coming towards us up the bank. Behind her walked another, a man, and the two came to where the altar of stone had been newly erected and stood there side by side, silhouetted against the churned white of the stream. Hugh had seen too, and touched me on the arm to call my attention. So far then, he was right. There was no mistaking the stalwart proportions of Sandy. Suddenly, across the gloom, shot a tiny spear of light, and momentarily as we watched, it grew larger and longer, till a tall beam, as from some window cut in the rock opposite, was shed on the bank below us. It moved slowly, imperceptibly to the left, till it struck full between the two black figures standing there, and shone with a curious bluish gleam on the flat stone in front of them. Then the roar of the river was suddenly overscored by a dreadful screaming voice, the voice of a woman, and from her side her arms shot up and out as if in invocation of some power. At first I could catch none of the words, but soon from repetition they began to convey an intelligible message to my brain, and I was listening as in the paralytic horror of nightmare to a bellowing of the most hideous and unnameable profanity. What I heard I cannot bring myself to record. Suffice it to say that Satan was invoked by every adoring and reverent name. The cursing and unspeakable malediction was poured forth on him whom we hold most holy. Then the yelling voice ceased as suddenly as it had begun, and for a moment there was silence again, but for the reverberating river. Then, once more that horror of sound was uplifted. So, Katrine Gordon, it cried, I bid ye in the name of my master and yours to rise from where ye lie. Up with ye, up! Once more there was silence. Then I heard Hugh at my elbow draw a quick, sobbing breath, and his finger pointed unsteadily to the dead black water below the rock. And I too looked and saw. Right under the rock there appeared a pale, subaqueous light, 
which waved and quivered in the stream. At first it was very small and dim, but as we looked it seemed to swim upwards from remote depths and grew larger till, I suppose, the space of some square yard was illuminated by it. Then the surface of the water was broken, and a head, the head of a girl, dead white and with long, flowing hair, appeared above the stream. Her eyes were shut, the corners of her mouth drooped as in sleep, and the moving waters stood in a frill around her neck. Higher and higher rose the figure out of the tide, till at last it stood, luminous in itself, so it appeared, up to the middle. The head was bent down over the breast, and the hands clasped together. As it emerged from the water, it seemed to get nearer, and was by now halfway across the pool, moving quietly and steadily against the great flood of the hurrying river. Then I heard a man's voice crying out in a sort of strangled agony. "'Katrine!' it cried. "'Katrine, in God's name! In God's name!' In two strides, Sandy had rushed down the steep bank and hurled himself out into that mad swirl of waters. For one moment I saw his arms flung up into the sky, the next he had altogether gone. And on the utterance of that name the unholy vision had vanished too, while simultaneously there burst in front of us a light so blinding, followed by a crack of thunder so appalling to the senses, that I know I just hid my face in my hands. At once, as if the floodgates of the sky had been opened, the deluge was on us, not like rain, but like one sheet of solid water so that we cowered under it. Any hope or attempt to rescue Sandy was out of the question. To dive into that whirlpool of mad water meant instant death, and even had it been possible for any swimmer to live there, in the blackness of the night there was absolutely no chance of finding him. Besides, even if it had been possible to save him, I doubt whether I was sufficiently master of my flesh and blood as to endure to plunge where that apparition had risen. Then, as we lay there, another horror filled and possessed my mind. Somewhere close to us in the darkness was that woman whose yelling voice just now had made my blood run ice cold while it brought the streaming sweat to my forehead. At that moment, I turned to Hugh. I cannot stop here, I said. I must run. Run right away. Where is she? Did you not see? he asked. No. What happened? The lightning struck the stone within a few inches of where she was standing. We, we must go down and look for her. I followed him down the slope, shaking as if I had the palsy, and groping with my hands on the ground in front of me, in deadly terror of encountering something human. The thunder clouds had in the last few minutes spread over the moon, so that no ray from the window in the rock guided our search. But up and down the bank, from the stone that lay shattered there to the edge of the pool, we groped and stumbled, but found nothing. At length we gave it up. It seemed morally certain that she, too, had rolled down the bank after the lightning stroke, and lay somewhere deep in the pool from which she had called the dead. None fished the pool the next day, but men with dragnets came from Brora. Right under the rock in the backwater lay two bodies, close together, Sandy and the dead girl. Of the other they found nothing. It would seem, then, that Katrine Gordon, in answer to Sandy's letter, left Inverness in heavy trouble. What happened afterwards can only be conjectured, but it seems likely that she took the shortcut to Garvan, meaning to cross the river on the boulders above the Pict's Pool. But whether she slipped accidentally in her passage, and so was drawn down by the hungry water, or whether, unable to face the future, she had thrown herself into the pool, we can only guess. In any case, they sleep together now in the bleak, wind-swept graveyard at Brora, 
in obedience to the inscrutable designs of God. End of Garvin's Eve Recording by Dom Ford